Well, this morning, as we consider this text, I want to consider quickly the character of Joseph. I don't want to spend a ton of time on that because that's not the good news. The good news isn't a man's character, but it is important for us to notice the character of Joseph. And then the good news for Joseph, what Joseph was actually told and how it altered his life. And then consider how Joseph responded to this news. The character of Joseph, we're told about his character in verse 19. It says, And her husband, Joseph, so if you remember the story, Mary has been visited by an angel. She knows that she's pregnant with child. She is a virgin. She hasn't had relations with her husband, Joseph. And if you're confused about why it refers to them as husband and wife and also their their betrothed, that they hadn't slept together yet, in this culture, they would be betrothed or they would would be considered married before the marriage ceremony and before they consummated the marriage later on. And so they were considered to be married. It required a divorce, a certificate of divorce for Joseph to to leave Mary, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. They hadn't celebrated the marriage or consummated the marriage yet. Joseph still would have had to provide a certificate of divorce to walk away from Mary, finding out, well, she's pregnant. And I know we haven't done the thing that makes her pregnant yet. There's some kids in here, so good luck, parents, with that conversation later. I'm a parent. My kids are in here. Yikes. Okay, so, Joseph knows, this isn't my baby. She's saying it's God's baby. What? How does this happen? I mean, Joseph has to be thinking, I've been cheated on. Mary, who I was excited about starting a life with, she's been with another man. Maybe willfully or unwillingly, I don't know, but this devastation in heart and mind as Joseph considers, man, my plans are crushed and things aren't going my way. And an angel shows up to Joseph. But it's after we're, we're told about his character. In verse 19, it says, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, that means a righteous man or a man of just good character. Scripture tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. And so this doesn't mean that he's like spiritually righteous in the sense that he can walk into the presence of God. He's not holy. He's not without sin. Both Joseph and Mary are born with sin. They follow the the trajectory, the, the bloodline of Adam and Eve as we all do. They are born with original sin. They have, they're sinners by nature and by choice. And so when Matthew says that Joseph is a just man, he's not saying he's a, he's a perfect man. Saying he's a morally upright man. He's a good man. He's a man of good character. He's a man who strives to uphold the Old Testament law. He's a man who strives to do what's right in everything that he can. And he's unwilling to put her to shame. I think sometimes we should just notice people like this in Scripture. And and we should seek to imitate how they live. I don't know about you, I identify much more with the disciples who aren't called a just man. I, I like, I, I so much easier associate with the disciples who run their mouth, who don't think before they speak, who are always getting in trouble, who just struggle to follow Jesus. And so sometimes I will gravitate towards them and I will self-justify my own failings. I think it's good for us to stop and notice that there are some good people in Scripture. They're they're, they're not godly in the sense that their good works are going to save them, but they're just good people who do the next right thing. And we should look at these people and imitate their way of life. Joseph is one of these type of men. It says that he doesn't want to shame 
Mary. So although Joseph is feeling some internal shame that that my wife-to-be has been impregnated by another man, I don't want to shame her. Old Testament law meant that he could shame her. He could bring her out in the public square and call her a, a cheater, a prostitute, a, some other worse words that scripture uses. I'm not going to say here because my children are there. He could do that. He has every right under the law, but he's a just man who wants to follow the law, and he's also a good man who doesn't want to shame Mary. And so he's decided he's going to divorce her quietly. He's just going to slink away. But he's a man of character. Notice that, and we'll come back to it near the end. But here's the the good news for Joseph. This is more important than his character because the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ always overrides character, whether it's good moral character or corrupt bad character. And so he's going to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I've said this before, but anytime you see the word behold in scripture, pay attention. It's one of the most repeated words in scripture. It says, it means to look, Pay attention. Something incredible is about to happen. Kind of wake up from your slumber. It's like a preacher saying, hey, wake up as you're falling asleep. That's what behold is in the scripture over and over again for. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. It's important. He's a descendant of King David. It had been prophesied and promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come in the line of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, Joseph is thinking, okay, maybe Mary's not lying to me. An angel showed up to me in a dream and said that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I don't understand the mechanics of that. I don't understand the science of that. I know human biology, and that's not how it's supposed to work, but something supernatural is going on here. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Here's the first piece of good news for Joseph. I mean, it, I think it's probably good news for Joseph that Mary's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, not by another man. But that's kind of like a, a small temporal good news. This is the good news, the gospel, the eternal good news, the sweeping good news that applies to Joseph, but also to all of people. It's that Jesus saves his people from their sins. Joseph, just like every man, every woman, knows the effect of sin. Even though he's referred to as a just man, he knows what his sin, his willful sin, and then what the sin of others has done to him, and and how it distorts his relationship with God, how it distorts his relationship with others. He even can sense how this this unknown, this uncontrollable situation between him and Mary, how, how it has the potential to distort their relationship. And the angel comes and he says this, This boy, who will be born of your virgin wife, given to her, given to you, given to the world by the Holy Spirit, his name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes from the Old Testament word name Joshua. It actually comes from Yahweh. It's Yah, Yahweh, the name of God, Yahshua. Yahweh saves. The very name Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves. And it's important for us to note and to be reminded, look at verse 21 with me. It says, for he will save his people from what? From what? Their sins. That's important to keep in mind. 
Because we traffic in this world of, of broken reality, right? We live our everyday in this world of oppressive governments, of physical ailments, of personal hindrances. And it's very easy and common for mankind to think that Jesus has come to deliver them from oppressive governments. In fact, throughout the New Testament, that's what many of the disciples thought. That's why they were disillusioned when Jesus was crucified by the Roman government. We thought Jesus came to set us free from the oppressive Roman government. And then throughout history, different nations, they're tempted to believe that Jesus has come to set them free from oppressive governments. We're living in a day and age right now where it's easy very easy for us to think that Jesus ought to be setting us free from oppressive government or restoring what we think to be a godly government. That's not what Jesus is in the business of. He will return and he will right this whole thing. He is the king ruling on the throne, but right now it's from the bottom up. Someday he will be sitting on the throne and we will all be worshiping him in one accord. That's not the reality we live in now, is it? Nation fights with nation. Country fights with country. Politician fights with politician. Parties fight with parties. Neighbors fight with neighbors. Coworkers with coworkers. Family members with family members. And oftentimes we, we forget that Jesus came to set us free from our sin. I want you to notice that, church, and to keep that in mind this Christmas season, this Advent season, that Jesus has come to set us free from our sin. That word sins there, it means missing the mark. It means personal offense, personal personal. Sin against God. Jesus cares about oppressive governments. He cares that his people get ultimate and eternal relief in the future. But he didn't come to set us free from oppressive governments. How do we know this? Well, he was crucified by an oppressive government. He hung on a Roman cross. When, when he overcame sin and death in the grave and when he sent the Holy Spirit, he didn't, send the whole, he didn't send the Holy Spirit into the first followers so that they could overthrow the Roman government. In fact, they continued to be oppressed and oppressed and oppressed and oppressed. And they spread out and they dispersed around the world into other different oppressive governments and regions and countries. And they continued to be the church of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus saves them from their sin, their separation from a holy God. Nor did Jesus come to set us free from our physical ailments. I mean, Jesus cares about our physical ailments. And Jesus often does heal us from our physical ailments. We see that all through the New Testament, that Jesus is offering healing to the leper, that he's, he's setting bones straight, that he's giving sight to the blind. And there are occasions where Jesus sets us free from physical ailments. There's miracle after miracle after miracle of Jesus doing this here and now. There's also stories where we prayed, we prayed, we prayed, we prayed, and it didn't happen. God, why? God, why? Why didn't you save me from this? Why didn't you save me from this physical ailment? And we need to keep in mind what the scriptures tell us. Jesus came to set his people free from their sins. Also, personal hindrance. Sometimes we, we just think that we're, we're like limited by our own personal incapabilities, we're hindered by things, or there's other people who just annoy us and get in our way, and sometimes we think that Jesus should save us from them. You ever been there? Like just praying that God would save you from the annoying person who gets in your way and slows you down, and they're the problem, God deal with them. 
and yet they still remain. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because Jesus came to save you from your sin, to, to use that person who annoys you to point out your own pride, your own judgment, your own, your own casting stones at other people. Maybe he's actually using that personal annoyance in a way to help reveal your sin so that you can repent of your sin to a holy God. Or maybe this personal hindrance, like the Apostle Paul says, I prayed three times that this thorn in my flesh would be removed, but God wouldn't remove it. This personal hindrance, it was holding Paul back. We don't know what it was. He prays that God would remove it. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember, Jesus saves you from your sin. He doesn't remove all of the obstacles. In fact, oftentimes the obstacles are the very thing that draw you back to him, that put you on your knees, that make you dependent upon him, and that remind you that Jesus has saved me from my sin so that I I could be with God the Father for all of eternity. This is the good news for Joseph. Jesus will save you and all of his people from their sin. Second piece of good news here is that God fulfills his promises. Look at verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here Matthew's going to refer to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This passage reminds us that God fulfills his promises. The conservative estimate of trying to see all of the New Testament passages that, where Jesus fulfills the Old Testament passages, there's about 300 instances in the New Testament where Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises. This is good for us, the so people who are longing for a better day. A people who are longing for, as Revelation 21 says, that he will return and all things will be made new and there will be no more mourning or crying or tears anymore for the former things have passed away. That's a promise given to us from God, which he has yet to fulfill. In the birth of Jesus, we see that God is a God who does fulfill his promises. Oftentimes, we have to wait. Oftentimes, the process of God's fulfillment of his promises involves pain and time and questions on our end, not understanding who God is or what he's doing or why he's allowing certain things, but God fulfills his promises. God had been silent for 400 years to the people of Israel before he broke in in the New Testament here, and Jesus the Messiah is born. 400 years of silence. Remember, Israel in the Old Testament, 40 years of walking through the wilderness waiting for God to bring them into the promised land? Well, God did bring them into the promised land, but they had to wait. Remember God's promise to Abraham? I will make you a great nation, and, and all of the nations of the world will be blessed through you? In 25 years of his wife, barren, not able to get pregnant with his promised son? The testimony, the arc of scripture is that God does fulfill his promises, but oftentimes we have to wait far longer than we want to wait. And let this be a reminder to us that God fulfills his promises in his time. And so keep waiting, keep waiting in times of darkness, church family. Hold on. One of the things that I love about Christmas is so many of the songs, they, they, they enter this tension between joy and mourning, right? They talk about darkness and light because we all know that life as it's lived in this real world, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. As, as we enter the holiday season, there's this 
deep depression that comes over many people because some of the celebration is very surfacey. But for those of us who really enter Advent, one of, the, one of the things that I love about the Christmas season is really entering Advent is we see that Jesus meets us in our weakness. He meets us in our darkness. He's reminding us that he fulfills his promises as we patiently wait for the day when he would fulfill them. Joseph, Joseph enters this stage, this awkward relationship with Mary where other people are going to have judgment, where they tell all of their families and friends that, hey, we didn't sleep together before our wedding, and this is God's baby. And all the judgment, and all the questions. And then as Jesus is growing up, and they're raising him, like, God, you, you said that this Jesus was going to be the savior of the world, and right now he's just a carpenter. I'm teaching him the, tra- the, the, the trade of carpentry. Joseph wasn't alive any longer when Jesus was crucified, but can you imagine Mary? God, you promised that this Jesus would be the savior of the world, and now he's hanging on a Roman cross. All part of God's plan to fulfill his promises. And so, church family, if you're in the darkness now, keep holding on. God fulfills his promises. If you're in a season of waiting, anticipating, or, or maybe, maybe you're not anticipating the future, maybe you're dreading the future because you can't see it. You can't see what God's doing. You can't see the outcome. Keep holding on. Let this passage be a reminder for you that God fulfills his promises. Then the third piece of good news in this passage here is that God is present with his people. So Matthew records that the angel tells Joseph that that this son, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 4, chapter 7, verse 14. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Church family, this is good news for Joseph. It's good news for you and I. God is present with his people. Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This name means that God is present with us. Some people get confused about like, well, well, why do they name him Jesus and Emmanuel? Emmanuel is more of like a, a title than, it's, than it is a name. Jesus was known as Jesus or Yeshua. Emmanuel is like, you know the title like Goat? greatest of all time, like Tom Brady is the goat in football, or, um, or like the captain of a team, or the captain of, uh, of uh, or the, like the first chair, I don't know anything about music, but like first chair in the band, right? It's like a title. It communicates something to people about this person. That's what Emmanuel means, that Jesus, the one who saves, is God with his people, That Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has left his throne on high and he has taken up residence with his people. He walks with his people. This is different than any religion in the world. All religions in the world, they they have this process of trying to please their God, of trying to work their way up to God. And in the Old Testament, God was contained to the temple, the Holy of Holies. And there were brief moments where the Holy Spirit and, and the presence of God and an angel would show up to his people. But primarily, the mode of operation between God and his people in the Old Testament is that God would, God's presence was contained to the Holy of Holies, the temple. And now, what we're being communicated to, the, the news that Joseph gets that he responds to is that God is now with his people. He's not contained to a temple. He's taken up a residence within his disciples. This is amazing news for you and I, church family. Many of us, 
we, we have these skewed views of God and his reality in our life. Some of us see God as like a, a distant or absent or disinterested parent or politician or pastor or teacher or coach. I think depending on how you, how you grew up, maybe you had a distant parent and you hear this language of God as father and you think, well, God must be distant. Or, or maybe you're used to like politicians who are supposed to fix everything, but they just say stuff and then what do they do, right? And, and so maybe it's like, well, the people who rule the world, they're supposed to fix things and they just make declarations, but then they don't really do the hard work or they don't do what they say they're going to do. And so sometimes we associate that with God. Maybe you had a teacher who just like gave you instruction, but didn't help you grow in your knowledge and your ability. Maybe you had a coach who, who just like, you know, and so sometimes we see God as distant from us or disinterested in the daily reality of our life. Or some of us see God as, as like over us. He has power and authority, but he's more like a dictator. He's just kind of ruling the world. He's just over us, and, and we're his little pawns. Some people see God as kind of below them. Like, mm, I don't know, God's a nice theory or a nice thought. Maybe even believe in God, but you kind of see God as part, partially distant or maybe just like, actually, he's given me control. He's given, he, he calls us to have dominion, and so therefore, I'm just going to make decisions. I'm going to run ahead. I don't need to stop. I don't need to pray. God's kind of below me. Maybe you see him below you as a support. That's a good thing, and he is a support, but maybe that's just the only way that you see him. Maybe you see God in front of you as a leader. Like, he's, he's leading the way and I'm following. And that's good, that's true, but it's also one-dimensional. God's more than just your leader. Maybe you see God as behind you, the one who's fixing your mess, who's cleaning up the messes that you make. And that's good, that's a right posture, but it's, it's not the only way to see God. See, the New Testament reality is that God is with us. He's not just above us ruling, though he is above you ruling. He's not just below you, supporting you, though he is below you, supporting you. He's not just in front of you, leading you, though he is in front of you, leading you. He's not just behind you, cleaning up your mess, though he is behind you, cleaning up your mess. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Emmanuel means that God is with us, that he's beside us, that he's with us in the mess. The joy of Christmas, the reminder of Christmas, the good news, the gospel that we need at Christmas is that God, Emmanuel, Jesus, the Savior, is present with us. God enters our mess. He sits with us in our mess. And he works through our mess with us. And church family, I can't tell you how freeing that is. Emmanuel, this name means that God doesn't abandon you when you're at your worst. I do so much pastoral counseling with people who feel like they've disappointed God and so therefore God has left them. When they're at their very worst, most vulnerable, most broken reality in life, well, God is disappointed with me. God saw through the facade. I fooled other people. I can't fool God and so therefore he's, he's ditched me. He's left me in the ditch. And that's not at all who our God is. This passage reminds us that he's Emmanuel, God with us. He sits with us. He weeps with us. 
He rejoices with us. He mourns with us. He suffers with us. God enters our mess. And so this Christmas season, keep that in mind, regardless of where you're at, depressed, despairing, super joyful, everything's good, God is there with you. This is the good news, and we respond to it over and over again, day in and day out, by developing this language of prayer where we're honest with God, where we can open up our hearts to God, where we can tell him what's really going on in our hearts and in our soul, because he knows it anyway. He's present. And then the response that Joseph has to this good news, the good news that Jesus saves from sin, God fulfills his promises, God is present with his people. The response of Joseph, I love it, it's just to trust and obey. Look at what he does in verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, this is the definition of being woke, by the way. You do what God tells you to do. Joseph wakes from his sleep. An angel has talked to him in his sleep. He wakes up. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love the simple response of obedience in Joseph. Now remember, Joseph is a man of character. He's a just man, not wanting to shame Mary. Some of you may identify with Joseph. Good job. Some of you may not identify with Joseph at all. That's okay. The realities of this good news in the middle, that Jesus saves, that Jesus fulfills his promises, and that Jesus is present with his people, means that all of us can, in our own way, respond the way that Joseph did, to trust what God has said, to trust the good news, and simply obey. I think sometimes we, need to, we just need to come back to the basics of the faith. What has God told me? And what does it look like for me to live that out? As we've been looking at the disciples this fall, so much of it is just basics, right? Love God, love neighbor. Trust that Jesus saves from sin and come to him asking for forgiveness. Believe that God fulfills his promises and just keep moving forward as you wait. Or even if you're in a stage of your life where you're sitting down, you're not even moving forward, trust Someday God's going to make sense of this. God is fulfilling his promises. And then believe that God is present with his people. And so you can pray. You can pray. I was with a group of people last week who um, we asked somebody to pray who has previously told us they're not comfortable praying in public. And they started this little prayer. And then they paused, like for an awkwardly long amount of time, like 30 seconds. And it was actually amazing. It like made all of us aware, oh, we're actually praying. We're not just saying some weird empty words to God who is somewhere up in the sky. No, God is present with his people. And so this person paused in their prayer for about 30 seconds, and then they said, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. And it was so amazing. It was the simple step of, of this person responding to God, rem- being reminded, oh, he's present with me. I don't have to worry about saying the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm growing in my trust of him and my obedience to communicate with him. And it was this beautiful moment that all of us who were present were like, that's one of the best prayers we've ever heard. A couple words, 30 seconds of pause, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) And this is what it means for us to just respond to the good news. To trust and obey. Disciples trust and obey. They take God at his word. And And this is a challenge, right? 
I mean, this is a process. It's not always easy to trust, but as we follow Jesus, as we're apprentices of his, what it means to boil it down, to distill what it means to be a disciple, is that I'm learning to trust God. I'm taking it day by day, step by step, and as I'm trusting God, I'm trusting who God is, what he says about himself, I'm also trusting what he says about me, that I'm so worthy of his love that he went to the cross to die for me. Do you believe that? So many Christians don't believe that God cares enough about relationship with them that he would send Jesus to walk among us in all of our suffering and die in our place. That's the essence of the gospel, the good news. That God wants relationship with you so much that he entered your mess, he walked among you. And so we grow in just trusting that simple, basic truth. And then as we trust, we obey. Look at Joseph. He woke from sleep. He did what the angel commanded him. Just do the next right thing. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. Joseph just simply said, okay, God, Yahweh, your life is mine. I'm willing to follow you. I trust this promise is being fulfilled. I don't even see all of the ways that it's going to be fulfilled. Certainly, Joseph had tons of questions, but his questions didn't delay his obedience. He just did what he was told to do. And so each Sunday at Park, this is one of the ways that we want to grow in our trust and our obedience is to come back to the table. To, to take communion, to remember that when we fail, that if our character is not like Joseph, the good news is that Joseph wasn't saved because he was a just man who, who didn't want to shame Mary, but he was saved because Jesus came into the world and saved him from his sins, and he trusted and obeyed because of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and there's power in his name. And so each week at Park Community, we come to the table to be reminded that when we fail, Jesus' sacrifice, his body and his blood is sufficient for us. So would you join me in taking communion this morning? If you're striving to respond to the good news, let's respond this morning by reminding that our trust is in a man named Jesus, the one who would save us from our sins, and let's obey by doing what he has told us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Peel back that first layer. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take that wafer, break it, and let's eat together. In the same way, he also took a cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Jesus, we thank you for, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, even this simple act of trust and obedience. I pray that you would honor it by filling us with more and more of the awareness of your spirit. 
the good news of your gospel. Lord, help us to trust you and to walk with you in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.